Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to this Irish Tech News Podcast. I'm here talking with Clara Armand Dalil. How are you doing, Clara? Hi, um, I'm well, Ronan. How are you? Good, thanks, Clara. Tell us a bit about your background. Yes, so um, I'm French and American. I've been um, doing PR and strategic communications for about 10 years in the tech sector. Um, I worked initially at Google, then I worked at Axel Partners, the venture capital firm based in their London office, and then I worked for um, the fintech company iZettle that was recently bought over by PayPal. Yeah. before uh, moving away from London and setting up a strategic communications and PR agency in Lisbon, where I'm working with startups and venture capital firms. So uh, tell me a bit about uh, why you think the lack of funding in the EU startup ecosystem. Um, it's a good question. There is and there has been for the last decade, I would say, um, an ongoing debate about the lack of funding in Europe for startups and other forms of innovation. Um, what I think we're seeing today is that it's not so much a lack of funding itself as a lack of distribution of how the funding is followed on through the different stages of, of a startup's life. So, you know, about a decade ago, I would, I would say, um, most of the debate was around, you know, can a startup, can two guys in a garage in Europe start a startup as easily as in the Silicon Valley? Are there any business angels and accessibility to seed funding? And, you know, then the, the, the kind of debate shifted and moved to sort of later stage funding. And today I would say across Europe what we're seeing is, you know, a big question around can we follow on through the growth stages, right? So is there access to later stage sort of Series B, bigger checks, um, and not only um, is there access to that finance, but is there also access to the skill set that goes with that? You know, um, building a, a startup at the early stage um, offers a, a number of, of challenges, but what are the challenges at the later stage? And can we find advice here in Europe from business builders who can help a company, say, scale from 50 to 500 employees? That's a very different question than, you know, we're, we're two guys in a garage again and we're looking to, you know, make our first few recruits and build a product and get it out there and gain our first clients, right? It's a, it's different types of questions. Yeah. So, you know, going back to that question, I think the question today about the lack of funding is more at the later stage. And it's not only the financing itself, it's also the skill set. Yeah, and what if the VC or the, the funder doesn't understand the area, area your, your product is in? How is that going to work? Yeah. Well, 100%. I think, you know, one of the things to say about Europe there, and, and again, you know, the, there's a debate about funding in Europe, but, you know, it's also an ongoing debate of sort of Europe looking at the U.S. and the Silicon Valley and thinking, you know, what's different? Are we, you know, are we behind? Will we ever manage to be at that level, etc.? I think, you know, what has to be remembered about Europe is that um, here we don't have a single consolidated uh, tech ecosystem, right? It's fragmented. It's fragmented geographically, linguistically, culturally. Um, you know, I mean, if you break down Europe, it's, you know, it's countries, it's languages, it's legal systems. It's what's legal in one country and not in another, etc. So those, um, you know, those are additional challenges for startups out here as they look to scale because um, acquiring clients and growing uh, in Europe will involve way earlier than it would in the U.S. 
uh, looking at other markets and looking at other languages and looking at localizing your product product to resonate in different cultures and languages, etc. So I think um, you know exactly like uh, going back to what you were saying about you know do sometimes the investors understand the sectors that they're um, that they're looking to invest in. Not only that, there's an added complexity in Europe, which is you know. Do they understand? Do they even understand the ecosystem beyond you know the culture that they're from, etc.? It's much richer and much more complex in Europe. But one thing to be said about that is that <clears throat> what we're seeing is that, for example, European startups that that um, successfully manage to scale are usually much more successful at, at launching new markets because chances are, by the time you know, we see them as like, oh, okay, a European scale up, someone who stands out as like a mid-sized company, etc. They've already expanded to several markets in Europe before they're looking at other regions in the world. So, you know, whereas in the U.S., you would have uh, a company that can grow really, really big in the U.S., never looked at localizing for other audiences, never done any of that. By the time they need to expand to a new market, they're complete beginners when it comes to, you know, scaling beyond a single market. Yeah, and also, I guess, as well, another thing is GDPR. How do they uh, cope with that as well? And then that's coming to, to regulation and law. Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, part of the job as a PR agency is, you know, advising um, our clients uh, when it comes to new market launches, when it comes to scaling, when it comes to expanding. Um, and, you know, what we try to offer is, you know, our, our multilingual multi-market expertise um, to really be able to become an advisory partner to these startups as they grow. You know, we look at a funding announcement and we say, for example, to a French startup, look, you're getting a Series A or a Series B announcement uh, out the door, right? Like, so we're going to send out a press release and we're going to announce how much you're, uh, how much funding you're getting, from who, etc. What are the next steps in the business? Aha, you just told me that your next step is you're going to be using the funds to launch in the UK. We need to get you English language press. That's what we need to do. Yeah. Can we pre-announce uh, the UK, yes or no? How much can we hint at the fact that you're moving into the UK? What vertical does your um, startup operate in? And can we reach out to the UK-based press in that vertical to start creating a media footprint for you there, etc., etc. So we really come as, you know, kind of strategic advisors beyond just the messaging. I would say that the messaging and the, and the media relations strategy is really a result of the kind of business strategy brainstorming that we try to offer to our startups. Yeah, so, and also, I guess, basically, during this time, you've seen mistakes that have been made by startups and VCs, and what, what could they be? Um, look, I, I think, you know, I don't know if they can be called mistakes. I think, you know, the way VCs operate, the way VCs operate, sorry, is that they basically, <clears throat> they scan the ecosystem for new ideas that are up and coming, and they try to get to know as many startups in a given vertical to understand yeah. from those startups which one looks the most promising in terms of growth. And that's a combination of a whole bunch of factors. It's kind of a secret sauce that these investors, you know, kind of have uh, individually and also as firms. They will look at, you know, uh, the, the founders and, you know, their vision and their passion and dedication. They will look at, you know, the product um, and, you know, how it's looking, the first version of the product. They will look at the team that the founders have managed to build around them. So what is the skill set of this team? 
that they already have in-house. Um, they will look at the overall size of the market that uh, the startup is looking to address. And is that a growing market or is that a dying market? They will look at how many competitors are out there, whether they're traditional competitors or competitors in the tech space, et cetera, et cetera, to make an investment. So, you know, it's a high-risk um, profession, right? Yeah. And it takes um, a combination of, of, you know, rational uh, decision-making that I was just describing, but also, you know, some, some sense of instinct. Yeah, because I, I guess but at times, the, when I'm even mistaken, it could be a VC saw company and didn't invest, and later on they regret not doing that. Oh, you mean passing on an investment. That's yeah. also a typical thing. You know, again, um, venture capitalists um, are most likely, you know, in most most cases, are investing money that's not, not theirs, right? It's it's money that was um, that was trusted to them by by LPs. Yeah. And so, you know, they come up with what they call an investment thesis, which is the direction, the line in which they're going to invest. Um, and you know, they have to make pretty drastic decisions, right? There's yeah. hundreds and hundreds of startups that are created every month, every week, um, and they try to look at all of them, and, you know, they have to handpick very, very, very few to make investments. If you look at a, a typical um, investment f firm, uh, per fund, they will invest anywhere between three um, and, and 10 or 12 startups per year, yeah. right? So that's not, not that many. True. And what startups have you seen that really impressed you? Um, wow, that's a really vast question. Um, startups that I've seen that have impressed me. Look, there's all there's all sorts of examples of startups that, that have impressed me. Some of them are still really young, and I'm really impressed with the idea of the startup, either because they're they're um, doing something really really different that we haven't seen before, or they're working in a space that I find has a lot of meaning, um, you know, and a sense of purpose. I think we're in a in a day and age where you know meaning and purpose and and sustainability, uh, etc., are, are are themes that really res resonate with our generation. Uh, or they can be startups that I've seen you know grow incredibly and exponentially. I mean, you know, Third Eye Media had the chance to work with Transfer. Um, in their early stage um, of growth and, and help them on a number of operations in France. And it's just been incredible to watch them all the way until the time that I worked with them and to now where they're, you know, last week they announced they were launching in Asia, right? Yeah. Or another example of a startup that's just completely nailed it uh, is iZettel, you know, again. So, I, you know, I worked with iZettel for three years Um uh, from 2012 to 2014, and uh, you know they were bought over by PayPal last month, and that's also an extraordinary journey. Um, of course, there's challenges for Izettle now. It's you know, and PayPal rather because um, you know you want to look at how they're going to execute around the integration, etc. But you know, it is an amazing outcome for the company. Um, so you know, those would be examples of uh, of European startups that uh, that I think have done tremendously well. And interestingly enough, they're both in fintech. Yeah. I think Europe has a real edge on financial technology. And I think, you know, um, it's often been said that um, because we have London, which is a global, such a global center for finance, um, we have a lot of innovation coming out in fintech. The thing with fintech is I get a lot of people emailing me about ICOs. And there's so many yeah. of them going on, you, got, you don't know which ones to trust, not to trust. That's a very good question. And, you know, if I were to answer that, and I will from a PR perspective, I think, 
you know, what we're seeing in the press is that, um, first of all, ICOs are quite complex, right? Because there's an added uh, complexity, which is that we're working with cryptocurrencies yeah. and not, you know, sort of physical currencies. Um, so that's, you know, that's one of the complexities. And so I think what we're seeing from a media perspective is that um, reporters are quite cautious to even run stories about ICOs because we don't really know if this is, you know, a complete bubble that, that's just about to burst in our face or if it's something that, you know, with time will prove itself to be a real trend um, and that will have, you know, tangible effects in the real economy. And that's not something we know. And so, you know, neither do the, the journalists. So I'm seeing a lot of caution writing about ICOs. And this is an extension of the caution that I'm seeing even just writing about funding, because earlier in the, in, the, in the chat, you know, you were asking me about the lack of funding in Europe. I think one thing to be said is that, you know, um, again, the lack of funding is maybe at the later stages. It's harder for a European startup to access cash at the later stages. Yeah. But there has been a proliferation of cash put into tech in the last 10 years. And this is true of the U.S., but also of Europe. Access to cash is much easier, and I would say that you know five, six, seven years ago, um, a startup getting a um, funding round was an amazing story for a reporter. Yeah. Like everyone would jump on it. But now it's it's become you know very very commonplace for startups to get funding. Right? They don't even need to be profitable. They don't you know uh, VCs are looking at different uh, deliverables today, and there's just more access to cash at least in the earlier stages. Yeah. Hence, there's many, many more um, stories about fundraising at the earlier stage. So we are seeing from reporters a bit of a fundraise fatigue. And, you know, as PR professionals, we're really advising our clients to um, dig a little bit deeper than the fundraise story, yeah. to build a story about their product, to build a story about the value add that they're bringing, to build a story about the strategy that they've put into place for when the funds are coming in, etc. So, you know, the example that I was giving you earlier about, say, you know, a French startup getting a funding round, you know, how do we go about PRing that, so to speak, and in what markets? Yeah. Well, if we discover in our conversation with them that they're going to use the funds to launch in the UK, that's definitely something we say, and we try to appeal to the UK media with that story because we're basically offering reporters in the UK an in on the fact that a startup that hasn't even come yet is going to be launching in the UK. So that hopefully is going to become relevant if we can build a proper story around it. Yeah, and I guess also another good way angle would be, will this startup ever become a unicorn? And if so, that it will be a good story to follow. Yes, absolutely. I think, so there's one thing about um, startups getting funding, which is sometimes, you know, some, some outlets, some reporters want to systematically cover it because they think, you know, if that's the one startup that I skip out on and then they become a unicorn, um, I'm a bit, uh, you know, I'll feel, I'll feel annoyed that I haven't covered them in the earliest stage, etc. So it's, it's almost like the same reaction as a, as a venture capitalist would have when you were saying earlier, like, you know, they, you know, what happens if they make a mistake and they pass on something that then becomes incredible. I think, you know, to a much lesser extent, of course, but some reporters can have, or some outlets can have that kind of approach of wanting to systematically cover, you know, fundraise announcements that are going out, um, 
so that they make sure that when one of them does become a unicorn, then, you know, they've covered them since the earlier days. Yeah. Um, one interesting thing about European unicorns, talking about tech trends or, and media trends, sorry, is that, um, you know, there's a bit of a debate also in Europe um, about later stage funding and how important it is to, um, you know, to ensure availability of later stage funding for European startups because the argument goes, otherwise, um, these startups, um, you know, are going to get funding from international VCs and end up being swallowed up by, um, you know, non-European uh, startups, you know, and um, it, it, it has proven kind of true. I mean, you know, this is obviously a very public example and kind of a spectacular example, but, you know, Skype was European and was bought by Microsoft, right? Yeah. So after a while, you know, the lack of funding, expertise, etc., to make them grow into what they've become today meant that, you know, an offer from a U.S. tech giant was terribly attractive, right? right. So... There is a concern that, um, you know, if we don't um, get our act together and properly offer follow-on funding to startups that are scaling rapidly, and, you know, again, that example of, you know, the, the, the kind of um, 50 to 500 employee stage, if we don't get our act together and provide the proper funding and expertise, um, then, you know, we increase the risk of our European potential unicorns um, you know, being swallowed up by non-European firms. So is that good or bad? I don't know. But uh, it is uh, it is a bit of a debate at the moment. I think that if they're swallowed up, they might lose their unique voice that had been a European, and they might become more pro, uh, focused on, on America as such. Um, I, I'm not sure if they would become more focused on America. I think, you know, I mean, when you're a startup, and, you know, I, I mentioned Skype being uh, bought by Microsoft, but iZettle being bought by PayPal is another perfect example from last month, right, that we mentioned earlier. I think it's not so much about becoming more American as it is, you know, when you're running a startup uh, of that stage and you want to continue to grow it, um, you want to continue to acquire more clients, build more partnerships, um, grow the company, hire more employees, etc., and you hit a bit of a ceiling. Yeah. Um, because you're lacking, you know, the external funding and the um, advisory potential um, from your local and existing investors. Then you just look for, you know, the next available solution. And if it comes from the U.S. Um, and you see synergies with um, an existing company that's ready to kind of offer you a deal to um, weave in your your company with them, then you're going to take it. If it comes from another place, you would take it from another from another market. I think it's more of a rationale around you know sustaining the growth of your company. Yeah, I guess so. And uh, tell me what what do, when you, when you're doing PR for startup, what draws you towards these startups that you work with? Um, that's a really good question. And, um, you know, we're really fortunate to be in a position where we can select, um, who we work with in terms of, of, of startups and, you know, markets and everything. Um, but I would say that for me, um, the most important thing is the people, um, you know, and I think, and the second most important thing is the product. But usually if you're working with outstanding, amazing, visionary people, their product is fantastic. Their product is something that you feel really passionate about. I think they really go hand in hand. But those are the two sort of uh, criteria that we look at um, when we're, you know, uh, choosing our clients, really. 
because last week I interviewed Jim Heaslip, who's the exile rugby captain, and he's now a big investor in tech, and he says, when I invest in tech, I invest in a team. If there's no team there, I won't invest. Kind of like what you do as well. Yeah, 100% in line with that. I think, again, the people are everything. Uh, it's their it's their vision, it's their energy, it's their drive, it's the way that they manage to garner uh, interest and buy-in of their product. I mean, by the time they're reaching out to Third Eye Media for you know support with the press, they already have a proven track record that they can you know, garner the interest, the buy-in, etc. Yep. right? By the time they need PR, it means that they've grown enough that they have a story to tell that's going to be of interest to the media. So it's, it's, it's very, um, you know, we can quickly tell if, um, if we feel that there's um, synergies with the founding team and the leadership team of a startup and that we think that we can help them. Another thing that's important to say is that obviously people and product are fundamental yeah. But at Third Eye Media, we're very, very adamant about only signing up a startup if we think we can help them. So if we think they have a story, if we think that, yes, we can get them in the media, or if we think that they have a product that's fantastic and will get clout with consumers and we can help them through, you know, drip feed, social media strategy, etc., we'll sign them up uh, in a heartbeat. If we don't think we can help them either because it's too early stage or because they don't really have... Um, uh, a kind of impactful piece of news to send out, etc. We can offer different programs to them, or we'll be super honest and say, "Look, like my advice would be X, Y, Z. Come back to do PR once you've achieved these milestones." Yeah. Do you know what I mean? We don't want to sign someone up just because they they at this stage without the professional knowledge of what media relations entails think that they need PR. You know, we will and we'll give them the free advice, saying, "Look, like." This would be my strategy in the next six months before you do PR, yeah. and then come back to us. Um, so that's you know, we really um, only want to work with uh, startups that we really know we can make a difference for. And also ones that when you give them advice, they will take it because I've seen startups before they've been told your product is okay, but you pivot this way, it'll it'll turn out better. And if they don't take that advice, my the people say, well, why would I, why would I deal with you guys? when you won't take criticism or, or, or take advice that you're given? This is true. I think, you know, um, when we when we sort of uh, are in that position of, of telling the startup that we don't think that we can work with them, sometimes it will have to do with, you know, product. We will give some product advice occasionally or ask them if they have, you know, this feature or that feature that would make it easier, et cetera, on the consumer side or whatever it might be. But I think more importantly, we look at it in terms of storytelling. So sometimes the story, the startup is too early stage to have a proper story to tell, whether it's a growth story, growth and momentum story, um, or whether it's, um, you know, a product story. When it has to do with them not having um, yet fleshed out uh, the basic tenets of their product enough, um, well, it can go two ways. Either they want some uh, messaging, branding, positioning work done, in yeah. which case we will sit down with them, brainstorm, and help them literally flesh out the messaging, the public-facing messaging, you know, uh, of their product, which will then be reflected on their website and you know all their social channels, etc. So that's one scenario. But if they come to us at that stage where they don't have the basic messaging of their product ready and they want PR, 
but they, they don't think that there's any value in getting the messaging done, then that's when we have to say to them, look, it's too early to go out with a press release. We don't even have three lines of how your product is described. Like, you don't have them. Do you know what I mean? So, um, you know, we, what we don't want to do is sign up a, a startup that thinks that we can get them media right away when they don't have their proper story to tell. We'll either help them build their story and then go out to the media, or we'll tell them it's too early, you need to develop your story properly and then come back to us. Or you need to grow your numbers properly yeah. so we have a real compelling growth story to tell and then come back to us, etc. That's some, usually how we proceed. Yeah, because you get someone tell your story and the story is three lines long. That's not a story. You want something that's more in-depth and more detailed but you can go, oh, wow, look at these guys have done it and achieved in, in this amount of time they've been together. Yeah, I completely agree with you. One of the things that I think is really important for a startup, um, and it's, it's becoming harder and harder for some startups that are, you know, so-called me-too startups that see an idea, like it, and copy it. But I think when, it, when you're coming up with an original idea, 100% agree with you, it's very important to spend time fleshing out your founding story. I was, you know, in this situation, I saw a problem, I thought, why isn't it working this way? And then I went and fixed it. That's usually what a founding story looks like. But it's got to be a heartfelt story, and it's got to come from a real life experience. And, you know, as PR professionals, what we try to do is we try to help um, the, the, the founder uh, of the given startup to flesh that out in lay terms and in a way that's really compelling to the audience. I mean, one good example of that was, you know, uh, in my earlier days when I was working at Google, um, and I was dedicated on Google Books and Google News. And Google News was founded by a senior engineer at Google who was working on Google Search at the time, called Krishna Bharat. Yeah. And basically, um, when September 11th happened, Krishna was in Mountain View, California, at the Google office, and, you know, saw the towers uh, go down. Um, Krishna has family in India and in the US on the East Coast and on the West Coast and he was googling all over the place news headlines to try and understand what was happening he was googling in Hindi he was googling in English and he was trying to get a sense of what was happening you know you wake up in California the, the incident happened at six uh, something in the morning you know yeah. so they woke up to the news and he was kind of scrambling and literally during that experience, which was traumatic for everyone around the world, he came up with the idea of Google News, which is a, a way to cluster news stories as they break, do you know, and be able to find in one single cluster, you can, you know, click through and see several sources reporting on a similar piece of news, which is exactly what he was doing through his browser with hundreds of tabs open. Yeah. to try and make sense of the news, and then you can draw your own opinion from it because you can see different points of views, etc., etc. So, you know, those founding stories are incredibly important um, in terms of storytelling for why you're building the product, what value are you bringing. I mean, you tell that founding story about Google News and people immediately understand why Google News was so groundbreaking yeah. and what value it's bringing to the person who uses it, right? You don't even need to go do all your marketing one-liners. You just explain the story of Krishna, his experience, and they get it. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? So meetup.com, that founded around the same time on 9-11. The guy who founded that, he wanted to know uh, where people were and what they were doing. And uh, from that, he said, why don't we have a, have a, a meetup where people can get together and uh, do things and, and, and be, be positive in life? And from that came meetup. And that's been a 
been a, a great startup was, but now it's a brilliant company. But then these days, yeah, exactly. And I think you know, again, uh, Meetup is a great example of you know building. Um, uh, a great, well, not building it, but going out and telling a great founding story, right? Yeah. The person who built that uh, product, you know, it came from a first-hand experience, yeah. right? And I think that makes a really compelling story. So that's also something that we try and encourage our startups to emphasize when they're going out, especially in the early days when um, you are, you know, basically trying to emphasize your proof of concept at the beginning, right? It's like you have a small handful of users and you need to prove why your concept is useful. Well, the founding story is an incredibly helpful uh, component of that. And also, I guess, when they tell, tell you their eureka moment, when they've thought of the idea and where, where they were when that, when that happened. Yeah. Yeah, making it, you know, I mean, it's a real-life experience, right? It's a real-life, yeah. as you say, eureka moment. And so, you know, the more detail you can give about that, again, going back to the example of Google News and Krishna Bharat during 9-11, thinking, this is missing. We should build this immediately. Um, do you know what I mean? And, and, and kind of pulled it together in a few months to make sure it, it was there and launched it. Um, I think the more you can bring um, these um, eureka moments into context and, and, and showcase how they're real life experiences of visionary people who go out and try and fix, uh, fix things based on real life experiences, the more compelling the story is. Everyone wants to listen to a good story. Yeah, everyone wants to have, hear a story with a, with a good ending, happy ending. That's positive. Exactly. Yeah. They want to hear it once upon a time, this happened, and then when they hear after, but three after the ten paragraphs, the end, the start of a new chapter. Yeah, and the positive, uh, the positive end to the story is that you know the the outcome is positive. The person has that experience and goes out and fixes it, and then the product takes off and it's it's improving the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Right. That's usually how it works, at least with with the internet, right? Because we can, you know, one person fixes something uh, sitting from an office in in Mountain View, California, and everyone benefits. True. So you spoke about earlier you used to work for Google. Why did you decide to leave Google? Yes. Yeah, so I worked for Google for almost four years. Um, and, um, you know, as I was saying, I was doing uh, product PR for Google Books and Google News. Yeah. Um, it was an amazing, amazing adventure. When I joined Google, I joined them in the London office in 2007. The office had, you know, 400 people. By the time I left, uh, the London office itself had 2,000 people. And the PR team that I joined um, had about 15 people across Europe. And by the time I left it, it had, I think, 90 people in Europe and, you know, over 200 people across uh, the globe doing just PR for Google. So it grew exponentially. And I think the answer is there is that what I really liked with Google in my early days was that kind of scrappy startup feeling. I mean, we used to joke that we we didn't have a job and a half per person. We had two and a half jobs per people. It was like the sheer volume of work, the sheer volume of, you know, launches, the explosion of creativity um, that was going on at Google in the earlier days was absolutely, you know, riveting. And it was an amazing, uh, an amazing ride. I mean, you know, we were launching products like YouTube. Yeah. We were launching Google Maps. We were rolling out Google Maps in Europe, explaining what it was. You know, this was these were the days where it was super, super exciting. And, um, you know, I think then the face of Google changed rapidly. And for me, what I was really looking for was to find myself back in that, you know, 
I'm going to build a product to change the world kind of scenario, which is why um, the the next role that I took on at Excel was so appealing because at Excel, you know, the partnership there was living and breathing uh, all these new ideas coming out of the entire region of Europe um, and handpicking, you know, some of the most promising ones that they found um, and, and investing in them. So my job there was then to, you know, work hand-in-hand uh, hand with these founders and, um, you know, prepare all these super exciting funding announcements with, again, some wonderful storytelling about, you know, um, different types of founders across different verticals and in different geographies that were, you know, launching something super exciting and cutting edge to improve people's lives or in whatever sector it might be. But um, that was basically, you know, one of the things that I found so attractive uh, and that I still find attractive in my job. And that's, you know, that's also one of the things that we live and breathe today at Third Eye Media. I mean, we work with, you know, startups and, and venture firms and we're, you know, constantly um, living and breathing these stories about innovation, improving uh, the way things are done, moving the needle of the status quo. Um, these are the kinds of, um, you know, stories that, that really get us excited and, that, you know, hopefully also get uh, reporters and their audiences excited as well. Yeah. I guess one question people would like to know, or is kind of a brilliant question, how do you get more women in, in, in tech? Hmm. That is a vast, vast question and a very good one as well. I think, um, you know, there's several things at play with, um, with, you know, the lack of women in tech and the kind of alarming receding trend that we've seen in the last 10 years. I think there are less women in tech now than there were, you know, in 2007 or 2008, at least in the UK, which is, which is kind of not a great indicator. But I think one of the challenges is um, the general lack of women studying computer science and, and, and coding and kind of, you know, engineering at large. Um, so that's one of them. And another uh, issue, I think, is the lack of, of representation and role models in tech, right? Women in leadership and women in tech positions. But I think they both go hand in hand. I think that um, if you don't see, you know, women in masses going off and studying, you know, technical skill sets uh, such as coding and computer science, then chances are you, you might not choose that discipline. Yeah. And then as a result, um, you won't see that many women who are in product management roles, um, you know, developer roles, um, web engineer roles, etc. And um, and that also has to do with you know the, the kind of um, educational choices that you made and what disciplines you chose to study. So I think you know basically it's a bit of a it's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem. But one way to move the needle is um, to sensitize everybody about um, you know about coding. So, but I think that this is kind of like one of the quick fixes that we can have to kind of balance out, you know, the number of women who are acquiring this skill set. Yeah. What I think is even more important for women um, today and for everyone today is to remember that we're in an incredibly fast changing world and that today... You know, acquiring a skill set like coding is fine, but we have to understand that coding languages are changing very rapidly. I think what's even more important is to no longer think of yourself as somebody who needs to be employable, but you need to think of yourself as your own brand. You need to think of yourself as your own micro-entrepreneur within your company, 
or as a freelancer, whatever status you're in at the moment in your career, everybody needs to be running their own career in a very proactive way. You know, it's completely obsolete to say you won't spend your entire life in a career. That's been true for 20, 25 years. But what's true now is that, you know, jobs um, are, are changing rapidly. And, you know, you shouldn't be worrying about being employable because that is anachronic to the reality of the job market. You should wor be worried today about, you know, being an entrepreneur. You should be worried about proactively rethinking, just like we were describing, you know, the founding stories of startups. Um, you know, how are these people thinking? Yeah. What critical um, thinking are they applying to the realities, the inefficiencies, the whatever it is around them? And how are they coming up with fresh ideas? Because these are things that you can offer in whatever status, whatever seniority level, whatever profession, whatever industry you're in, um, including as an employee, you can be offering this kind of critical thinking. And I think it's, it's absolutely essential um, for our generation and the one coming behind us, um, women and men, but especially women, because women have never, you know, have, have been less encouraged um, to take on these kind of leadership positions. And, you know, there's a ton of studies showing that um, women are, you know, for example, more inclined to apply for jobs where they know that they have, you know, almost 100% of the skill sets matching the job description, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not something that we want to say in terms of generalization, but there have been numbers, stats showing that uh, in general, women are less inclined to take risk. And I'm sure a lot of it is learned. And I think we need to de-learn this as a society. Um, so, you know, these are kind of snippets of my thinking about the topic. Yeah. But I think, you know, as a woman in leadership, as a woman working in the tech industry, as a woman uh, in a 100% female company, um, because, um, you know, my, my senior account managers working with me who are both wonderful and very creative are also women. Um, I think I'm really trying to walk my talk and I'm really trying to, uh, you know, build out a team here that's completely self-sufficient, super autonomous and where everybody thinks of themselves as a micro entrepreneur within the company. Yeah, earlier you mentioned, mentioned about branding. In my view, when, when I do my stuff, I go into the brand TikTok because I wanted to have a brand that was me working and not me as, a, as, as my own name as a person. So <clears throat> when I'm doing my uh, journalist stuff and blogging stuff, podcast stuff, I use the name TikTok just so that's me as, Superman, me as basically Superman. And when I'm off duty, I'm like Clark Kent. I do different things. I'm not the same person. And if women in startups were kind of that kind of focus, you said, I'd had their own branding, they can sell themselves a lot easier that way as well with a brand. I think for a startup itself, it's it's um it's different because I think there's a difference between the versatility of a human being who can take on different faces, as you were describing, like you know when you're in podcast mode or when you're do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas for a for a, a startup and a company, uh, the entity does need consistency, right? I think one of the key things for a brand is, is consistency in messaging, consistency yeah. in image, etc. Um, so, you know, that's also something that we work on, um, you know, and advise our, our, our clients on and especially as they're scaling and moving across different geographies or scaling in size, etc., is, is the consistency. You can shift, you can pivot slightly, but you have to align everything, all of your channels, you know, all of your look and feel, etc., at once. Um, yeah. I think that that's something that, you know, as opposed to individual branding, 
that I was alluding to, I think for corporate branding, the consistency is is essential. For individual branding, you can have these different facets. And in fact, you know, there's a lot of talk going on about, um, you know, having a multi-skilled, multi-experience career where, you know, you have a main job and you have a side hustle, for example. And, you know, one of your facets can be that side hustle, which could be completely different from your main job. And for example, I mean, in my case, you know, I, um, I've been practicing yoga for 10 years and I teach yoga and I'm developing a well-being um, activity on the side. So I would consider that my side hustle. And that's one facet of myself and my personality and, you know, my activities that I chose uh, choose to show more on certain channels than on others. Yeah. And then on other channels, I choose to show, you know, third eye media and, you know, this consistent profession that I've had for 10 years. Right. So yeah. I think for individuals, you can have the multifaceted approach. I think for for a brand, it's very important to keep the, the consistency. OK. Anything else you want to want to add? Um, no, to be honest, it's been great chatting with you. Wonderful, uh, wonderful ride through uh, startups, funding uh, Europe versus US. Um, I don't think I have anything to add. OK, that's great. Thanks so much for that, Clara. Uh, have a great day. And uh, talk to you again real soon. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye.